0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode. Uh, excited to have this guest on. He is the, author of, the co-author of The Straight A Conspiracy and the co-host of The Brian Callen Show. I recently heard this guest on the Joe Rogan Experience and loved hearing everything he had to say. Then started following him on Twitter and, and really admired his trolling of libertarians and anarcho-capitalists. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very entertaining. I, as a troll... I must say, I, I really enjoy that. And uh, and you speak, so you speak, you speak seven languages too?
1: Uh, Yeah, maybe a little bit north of that. They're all in various states of disrepair though. Okay. Um, so they all sort of look like IKEA furniture after about four <laughs> or five years. Well, yeah, It's
0: if you really, if you don't use it, you definitely lose it. Like I was, I remember, so when I first started, uh, when I was in Spanish, I was, I was struggled with Spanish one. And then I got a job at Steak and Shake, and I worked. Uh-huh. I worked back in production, and everybody else was Mexican, so I learned Mexican very well, and like I knew all the slang. But it helped me even when I was taking like proper Spanish, and I was always good with like the the writing and the grammar of of Spanish. And then I was really good at Spanish. And then I went away to college, and I lost all my Spanish. So I I went to Spain, and I can speak broken Spanish decently, and and it, it was coming back quickly, but. It is amazing how quickly you lose those functions for for speaking a foreign language.
1: Well, and I mean, I don't think I mean uh, there there is definitely degradation, but a lot of, as you say, it's broken Spanish. A lot of it is that those pieces are then still floating around in your brain, and you just have to reassemble them. Yeah. Um, And, you know, that's the thing. I mean, because my dad's Dutch and uh, the Dutch, you know, everybody knows when you're in Holland that nobody is going to learn Dutch. Like it's just one of the great givens in human history that nobody wants to learn Dutch. So that means there's just this real understanding that if you want to be viable uh, in business, then you have to learn everybody else's language. And so it's just a routine part of the culture. Um, to learn four or five languages and then once you get past four or five you're sort of like oh this is a thing like it's enjoyable I know how to do it it's not particularly stressful Um, and you've just become a lot of it is that you become much more comfortable speaking broken whatever Um, and you aren't so precious about having to get everything right so you're perfectly happy to butcher other people's languages and sound like a five-year-old.
0: What I, what I did notice in Spain is, like, they really appreciate, like, I know certain countries don't appreciate mm-hmm. the broken language, but Spain actually does. So when I was in Spain, yeah. like, they were they were really like, oh, you're trying to learn Spanish. Oh, that's so cool that you're embracing our culture like that.
1: Well, I mean, the, yeah, it's absolutely, and that that's a big thing on cultural norms, too. I mean, the Germans, you try and speak German, and if you make even one error, they, like, just dial down on that and they're like, you should have used the dative there. That was the wrong tense that you used. <laughs> you know, They're also and then,
0: fluent in English anyway,
1: since you're Yeah. And and then I mean the other I think the great counterexample is the Japanese where you speak even one word of Japanese, and they're like, "Oh my God, you are fluent! Well done! <laughs> That's such a genius!" Um, but if you ever really—I mean, as a as a you know, tall white man—if you ever really want the experience of what it's like to be a rock star, just go to Japan and just speak even basic Japanese, and you'll be treated like some sort of like rock god. Truly noted. That sounds yeah. great.
0: I, uh, I'm i so terrified to go right now just because of the Fukushima shit. And I'm just like, ah, I don't know what's going on there. But who knows? <laughs> I think it's uh, – I got to go once in a lifetime. Tokyo just seems like such a cool place. Um, it's definitely on the to-do list. Um,
1: well. <clears throat> Yeah, it's hard it's hard to beat. Um I mean I got I did a Japanese exchange when I was a kid in high school and uh you know like the nature of all these things they always have like weird relationships with some particular city. So we had a relationship with Nagoya. And I was like, what, what is this place? And they're like, oh, it's the Detroit of Japan. And I'm like, oh, great. Like, wow, way to pick a winner, guys. Like, we couldn't go to Tokyo or Osaka or Kyoto. No, we're going to Detroit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. And we do want to say, because you said your your uh, dad is Dutch, but I do want to point out that your mom is Scotch-Irish and from Kansas City. So you're you're of the same ilk as me and a lot of the Sample Hour listeners, which makes you a hillbilly. Uh, That's right. Yeah, and, and uh, I I did appreciate you. Uh, I did check out Hillbilly Algae, and it was like, oh shit, this guy's from like he's like an hour away from me, like mm-hmm. grew up in the same area, has the same pretty much the same story as my grandfather, and it's like except my my grandfather landed in Toledo, and I was like, oh man, like I that's that's a weird thing. Like I'd like to talk to that guy. But I don't know what I'd talk to him about. Like maybe just being a hillbilly, but I don't know. Like I I try to keep it more. I, I try to keep it more with, let's reconnect with the roots and learn the old ways. And I think his, 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 his messages, you can assimilate if you want to. Mine's like, let's learn the old ways. I think it's like, I feel like we have a contrasting message and I don't think it's a bad thing, but like just the aspect of like, he went to Yale law school and I, I didn't finish college. I was just like, man, like this doesn't, I feel like I've been lied to. And then I was just like, you know, then I got into sales and I got more into entrepreneurship so it's been an interesting, but I still like respect the story, and I still really appreciate it because it's like, man, I just identify with so much of that of just like being the white black sheep, and like you can fit in with other white people, but you're not necessarily the same culturally, if that makes sense.
1: Well, I think it does make sense, and I think that's why it would be a great conversation between you and JD because, I mean, that's that's the heart of what we're all struggling with is that we've all been handed. Uh, you know, certain culture from, you know, our ancestors. And the question is, what do we do with it? How do we keep the best of it? Because that's the, as you're saying, a lot of the good things have been lost, like the ability to make moonshine from maple water, which I want to hear <laughs> all about. Uh, and at the same time, you know, there are, uh, there there are parts of our cultures and, you know, that's a lot of what we're dealing with in the modern age that aren't helpful. But, um, and so the, the question, and I think, what you know, a lot of what Brian and I have spent our time doing is because, you know, Brian and I were born overseas, we moved all over the world between all of these different countries. And so we were constantly seeing both the good and bad parts of all these different cultures. And the question is, what do you do with that? Like, what, what, you know, you can't really, you no longer feel comfortable buying into any one culture completely, because you're too aware of all of its craziness, but at the same time, you know it's there's not really the opportunity to who else out there was just sort of just approaching the cultures of the world like a smorgasbord and just sort of taking the bits they like and ditching the bits they didn't like. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's I think that's the point. Like there are things about hillbilly culture that have been lost that you know it sounds like you and your community are trying to preserve, and I think that's awesome. And then the challenge is at the same time, you know, how do you support yourself and how do you stay economically viable? And are you able to be self-sufficient through sort of farming and doing all of that? Or alternatively, is there some need to – and it sounds like you mix it, right? Because you were working for Time Warner and doing sales and entrepreneurship. Yeah. But then you're also, you know, doing stuff at home.
0: Yeah. So that's that's interesting, man. So it was uh, like I, I knew – I don't, I don't, you know, my, my grandfather always had this thing to where, you know, I mean, like he grew up literally in the, the hollers and he couldn't like, he, the, the soon as he turned 18, he, I think he was taking apart old railroad tracks and selling the metal. So he had enough because they weren't active and you could do it. So he had enough money and he was just going to take a train to Toledo because he knew there was jobs there. Like he heard all the way in the hollers that you could go get a job there. And he had, like, uh, his right arm, he, could, he can't ex- fully extend because a, a horse stepped on it when he was a kid and actually wanted to remove his arm. And his dad said, I'll kill you if you do that. And <laughs> he literally said that. And then so he, uh, he went up and he started working on the railroad. And it, they needed so many jobs that he never got the physical. And then he got the physical after working for over 30 days. And they said, well, look, normally I'd say no, but if it hasn't hurt you now, I'm going to let you keep working. And then Mm -hmm. from from there, he, like, he had a dump trunk business and he, I mean, I think he had six kids and literally, oh, this is an interesting story too, just about hillbilly culture. Um, So my biological grandmother, I never knew. And she was just fucking crazy because my grandpa somehow got custody of six kids in the sixties. And so, but at one point in time, she had taken uh, my mom and all my uncle, aunts and uncles down to Texas and my grandpa and Uncle Bill went down there. And my mom remembers my Uncle Bill having a gun to her mom's brother and saying, "Look, you're not going to come get these kids anymore. That's we're not going to go down this road anymore. These are our kids." And and so it's like it's some very real shit from my personal history of like what my grandpa like he would do anything he could to provide for his kids and to make sure he could take care of them. And it's like it, it, it's kind of interesting now because you know just he was like my he was the guy that. I didn't have a babysitter. I had my grandfather. So, like, I learned a lot of stuff as a little kid, like multiplication and all this stuff just from him teaching me, like, just from carrying boards or playing cards. And then as I've gotten older, you know, I, I started I, – I, I believe this idea, like, I have to go to school and get good grades. And it was like, okay, well, this is kind of bullshit. And then I started reading books on entrepreneurship. And then I, I ended up doing some sleazy network marketing companies and lost a bunch of friends. <laughs> And then like, but then then like, you know, I got into sales and then it was like, so it was like, okay. And I, and I, and I was always good at talking to people, um, and just making people feel comfortable. Like that was kind of like my, a defense mechanism for me because I'm not, I'm not really extroverted, but I just understood that if I want to feel comfortable in public, I need to make sure everybody else is comfortable. So it was like uh, a thing for me. And then it's been like, I've, I've tried multiple entrepreneurship things and then, when the, I knew I took the Time Warner job knowing that it would probably only last two years. And then I did like some comedy shows with, like, uh, with Red Band and we did a couple of Kill Tonys and we did some other stuff. And but it was just, you know, it, it to me it wasn't, it, it was just, it was hard to make that money back without, without having alcohol sales. So then I got into small scale farming and more into my roots. And then I just found people that are actually making money. So I tried doing it part time last year. And then mm-hmm. when I got laid off, now it's like okay, I can do full time. And then from that, that's how this community's kind of spun off because it's like you know we can, we did you know we'll have like a hog butchering and we all come together like the old ways. Like we're all. I mean, I'm a big Wendell Berry fan. Have you read read any
1: Wendell Berry Hunter? Uh, no, I have not, but I will be.
0: Yeah, Wendell Berry. I would like to say he's like the hillbilly philosopher. Like he's he's from Kentucky and he writes a lot of stuff about. Those issues, but there's there's a lot of good Wendell Berry books, and and it's kind of like I was already kind of on this path, and there's a, this other guy, Gene Logsdon, which is he uh, he wrote a book called The Contrary Farmer, and it's more about you know the, farming as a whole has become so out of control because it's so debt dependent, like it's you know mm-hmm. you have to you have to get you know you have to get all this stuff for to raise a bunch of chickens or to ra- to to do massive row crops, and it's like people like to demonize these people, but at the same time, like. They kind of got tricked into into this system, and now they don't have a way out. So, for us with small scale farming and urban farming, it's you know you can produce a lot more production wise per acre, but at the same time, the sweet spot's kind of at one acre. And these are some ideas that you know Wendell Berry and Gene Logston talk about years ago. But uh, all the guys I actually learned from are Canadian. So a lot of guys, are- <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, it's so funny. Like I, I learned from these Canadians, and then I found these hillbillies. That we're talking about it years ago, so it's uh it's interesting, man. I mean, but Joel Salatin, like he's a he's a focal point of of this whole food movement, local food movement. I mean, you look at where he's at; he's right in Appalachia. So I I feel like, you know, when you look at the history of hillbillies, especially, have you seen um uh, that History Channel hillbilly documentary with Billy Ray Cyrus? No, I haven't. I'll send you a link, but it 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 takes you through the history of (laughs) of like where the Revolutionary War really turned when they were trying to go through the hills and they tried to just stand in line and then the hillbillies had hunting rifles. And apparently mm-hmm. the, the term redneck came from when hillbillies were trying to rebel against the coal mining and they were trying to unionize. So they wore red handkerchiefs so they could determine themselves from the, the mercenaries the coal company was hiring. So they were Sounds called the Redneck right. Army. So that's where those... Well, anyways, keep going. Sorry.
1: Well, no, I was just going to say, I mean, I think there's a lot of great stuff in there about what's awesome about the hillbilly culture, because it is that Scots-Irish culture. And I mean, you know, you say, oh, you know, I've just always been very good at talking uh, to people. And, you know, that's the gift of the gab. That's the old Irish, you know, way. And it's, you know, passed down and the accent may have changed. Um, But that ability to, you know, uh, so many of America's great preachers, great writers, Uh, great storytellers have come from that scots irish culture um and you know that that long history of american rhetoric a lot of it is that and that's where you know it's also it's not just that white redneck culture but also that black redneck culture of rap of gospel of all of these things so i mean i think it's it's very easy so often when people talk about the redneck culture or the hillbilly culture it's so easy to focus on the negatives of violence and disorder and whatever else it may be but it's not i don't think to to me i think the opportunity i the the way that i always explain this and think about this is there's that great quote that john f kennedy says where he had he says um Washington, D.C. is a city of southern efficiency and northern charm. Um, (laughs) And and I think the great opportunity always for America has been to become a country of southern charm and northern efficiency. Um, And that's never something that's being done. And I think that that's a culture that we could evolve and take the best of, of both cultures and ditch the worst of the other culture. Um that's hard to do
0: though because you you pointed oh, yeah. out before like because we are a herding culture that that is why we get so fucking crazy about <laughs> protecting our families and uh and property. Yep. And it's And there's it, keep going, sorry.
1: Well, and, and there's those strong intuitions of loyalty. I mean, I think the most important thing in terms of us understanding the Civil War, you know, there's if you read like, you know, the uh born fighting or um, any of the things about the Scots Irish, you know, most Southerners and you know didn't own slaves, um, but it was about being loyal to the cause, and they were willing to be blindly loyal to a cause that maybe they shouldn't have defended.
0: Yeah, well, it's uh, that that one movie with uh, Matthew McConaughey that just came out. That was with the United States of James or something of Jones. Uh, mm-hmm. That was really good, and that was. And I think Cold Mountain touches on that too about how they didn't realize what a raw deal they were getting. It was like, you know, it was the poor whites fighting the war for the plantation owners. Like it was the, the and 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 that's uh and that's kind of the the shame of I think history is because it doesn't tell that story. I mean, we're taught that the Civil War was just about slavery and everything else like that. And then what I really liked about that movie with Matthew McConaughey is there's the one scene where the guy's calling The black dude, the N word. He's like, well, what makes you any different? Like, you're not any different than him. I mean, you're just you're just the white version. And that's and and it's interesting too because even growing up, for me, like all my friends, because we met, I moved from Toledo to Columbus, which is a totally different world, even though it's in the same state. And uh, Mm -hmm. I remember most of my friends, like I went to uh, was pretty much an all white suburb school because it was supposed to be good schools, and my mom was trying to get us into good public schools. And most of my friends were were black or Puerto Rican or they were usually minorities. And just I don't know, I just felt more comfortable with them. And then like I remember going to my friend Chris's house and his parents saying like, oh, we're gonna cook you a good southern meal, something you never had. And it was like, no, nah, this is the same food that I grew up eating. Like we ate cornbread, <laughs> we ate eggs and potatoes, we eat biscuits and gravy. Like that's that's the bread and butter of our of our diet.
1: Yep. And that's, I mean, it is those two, it is the same culture. And, you know, what's fascinating is, is that even though there have been all these migration patterns, I mean, what J.D. Vance talks about in Hillbilly Elegy, right, I can't remember what it is, what was it, Route? Um,
0: was? Yeah, 23,
1: yeah, Route 23, yeah. So, you know, there's the Route 23 migration out of Appalachia into the Rust Belt, and then obviously a lot of Amer- African Americans moved north uh, for World War II and for manufacturing. But, you know, those those cultural ways have preserved each other, and I think what's interesting is the degree to which you are drawn to these black and Puerto Rican friends because they have a lot of the same values of community, loyalty, um, you know, and, and I mean, let's be honest, they have less of a stick up their butt than most Northerners. Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: <laughs> for sure. Even in sales, man, like I used to sell in uh, kiosk for Verizon. That was another mm-hmm. wonderful job that I had.
1: Side career, yeah.
0: Yeah. And, uh, but I mean, I learned a lot because it was like really belly to belly, but I always did better in sales. Like people would be afraid to go to like, I worked at this mall, I actually closed down that kiosk there. I went to Eastland Mall, which is... I mean, it's predominantly like poor whites and, and blacks. And I did very well there until people stopped paying their bills. But it was like, but I always did well with sales there. And I always liked it better than Dublin, which where I worked at before, where it's all like, you know, snooty, upper middle class white people. Right. And I, and I just, and it's like, it's this, and it's exactly what you're talking about for the same reasons. Like you just, I just feel more comfortable
1: Well, and I think also, crucially, it's that you would need to sell in a totally different way to snooty white people, um, because it is that different culture. And, you know, I mean, it is that culture of dignity. And that's what so much of this comes down to is a culture of honor versus the culture of dignity. And, you know, dignity is about thinking that you're better than things and that certain things are beneath you. Um, And that's what that stick up your butt is really about. And it's, you know, good for preventing violence and potentially valuing education, but it uh, creates real problems. I mean, the, the, I think what's interesting is, and, you know, in terms of the, the trolling that you were talking about, um, you know, someone like Sam Harris, who uh, is from that culture of dignity, which in the scientific literature is called weird. Uh, That's actually the name of libtard culture. Uh, (laughs) And it's
0: hard culture. That's great. Yeah.
1: And it's, it's an acronym for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. And they're incredibly odd uh, people. And, the, you know, John Haidt, whose work I'm a big fan of, he, did, he came up with all these things that were designed to sort of morally dumbfound people and basically create these situations where people couldn't find reasons to object to them. So I'll give you an example. Um, so a brother and a sister are on holiday – um and you know one night they rent a really pretty cottage down by the sea uh they're backpacking and they decide that you know it would be fun for them to have sex and even though the girl's already on birth control they decide to use a condom and uh so no one can get pregnant they only do it once they have a a great time they feel that it brings them closer and forever, it remains a secret between them. And they both go on to have happy marriages without other, with other people. Do you feel this is right or wrong?
0: I mean, that makes me uncomfortable for sure.
1: <laughs> exactly. And that's the point. The point of the story is to make you super uncomfortable. And then you, what happens is that when you give these questions to college students, they sit, sit around and try and search for reasons. Why is this wrong? They're like, oh, you know, incest. They could have a kid and that would be messed up. And then, you know, or they're like, oh, it would ruin their relationship and create all sorts of problems. But, you know, they're like, well, they used a condom and they used birth control. You know, in the story, it brought them closer. It remained a special secret between them. And so, you know, this weird culture will sit around and try and find justifications for why this is wrong. But then John Haidt went and did this outside of a McDonald's and he would ask people who were not from that weird culture and they'd be like, that's fucked up. Like, why are you telling me this fucked up story? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I don't need to give you reasons. Like that's just fucked up and wrong. Like you shouldn't do that. And so that what, what ends up happening is, is that that right there is a big part of what the disconnect is between, you know, sort of the red States and the blue States is, is that the red States have very, you know, they have certain moral principles that are very clear to them and they don't feel the need to particularly justify them. And then on the other hand, the blue states will sit and they will spend their time trying to make sense of why things are wrong that are just obviously wrong to the red states. And they're like, why are you even trying to talk this out or figure this out? And so they so this, you know, for the last I mean, this is hundreds and hundreds of years. But this culture of dignity and this culture of honor have failed to understand each other. And they're each doing things that make sense internally within their own culture, but that are deeply upsetting to the other culture. And so they just repeatedly trigger each other back and forth.
0: Yeah, it's, yeah. I think it's more interesting, um, like, like, I mean, just especially now with this uh, election and yeah. the Trump stuff. And I mean, for the first time in a long time, unions voted overwhelmingly Republican. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's and I think it's interesting too because most union workers, which fall in the blue state, actually came from you know red states traditionally, mm-hmm. and it's uh and it and I think it's and I I've talked about it a lot with my friend uh, Charles Hugh Smith um, that it's it's really and David Wong is where I really originally found the idea from the guy that were like John Dies at the end and he writes for uh, Cracked. But it's, yep. it, it, you know, Trump was just a, a brick to be thrown through the establishment. I mean, I think most of those people w- don't agree with Trump and they don't necessarily like Trump, but they probably find him entertaining. And mm-hmm. and it's like, you know what? Nobody gives a shit about us anyway. So we might as well be entertained. And any man, I mean, I, I relate to that quite a bit. Like I didn't vote because um, it's I mean, I, I'm not going to vote for if I don't if, if I don't feel like somebody truly represents me, I'm not going to vote. And, and also too, I just, I think it's, I I go back and forth on it. Like I like to vote on local shit, but the like federal stuff. It's just like, man, I don't think my voice really matters. I could be wrong, but, uh, you know, I, it's been fascinating to me because it's like the, it's like the weirds kind of pulled in these, you know, probably these blue collar workers and then they've just, and blatantly not giving a shit about them. And now they're like, oh, what do we do now? And it's, and it's, it's, it's been a fascinating thing for me. Even, you know, my parents, my mom is like a classical, uh, she's a classical liberal. And that's the way I was raised. Like, you know, she, she's, you know, she's a social worker, worked in the city, always worked with Appalachian families. Like, whether it be for, for older people or she did a lot of black outreach when she was a social worker for AIDS and HIV patients. So, like, she kind of, you know, she wears her heart on her sleeve and, you know, she might say, you know, she really believes in redistributing, you know, things. But also she's a person that always gave out of her own pocket when she probably couldn't afford to. And, like, Mm -hmm. she really lived those morals where I see a lot of the kind of SJW liberals that are saying, oh, we need to redistribute uh, wealth or we need to... Things aren't fair, but they, they don't have any skin in the game, unlike my mom. And so it's, I feel like it's this huge transition right now. And I think a lot of classical liberals don't even know that now they're, they're considered conservatives. Or they might, not, they might even be a part of the new conservatives that are ge- being classified. And, it, and it, to me, I mean, and, and I've heard it say, and you know, I, you guys had a great interview with Jordan Peterson, who really has kind of been a, a focal point of this cultural war in a sense of because that's really what's going on
1: well and the key thing is understanding how do you you know sort of show off socially within the different tribes and i've got a buddy who uh dave dave his last name is actually colon um but (laughs) you know it's spelled c-o-l-a-n um but so dave colon um i always feel weird every time i say his name but uh Dave, uh, Dave always says, you know, in an honor culture, you sort of prove your worth to the group by sticking with the group, no matter what the cause is. And in a dignity culture, you prove to your worth by standing up against the group. And so that's so much of, you know, what Jordan Peterson is talking about in dealing with this with these social justice warriors, is it is just a defiant you know oh you know gay rights and transgender that's not enough like you guys are oppressive and i'm going to stand up for the rights of the oppressed minority and the oppressed minority is this virtually non-existent population of people who feel that either you know he or she are overly limiting and that we should have 70 different gender pronouns yeah Um, but so they've they've just sort of run that idea of dignity to this to this, you know. I mean, they're fighting injustice that isn't even a sizable injustice. <laughs> <laughs> or 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 that isn't even practical. I mean, I so much of this I think, you know, to bring it back to the beginning of the conversation comes down to linguistics. Like there used to be a, you know, a two form in English and it was thou, right? And the English language dropped thou. Because they didn't feel that that extra pronoun was useful. It didn't convey anything that you doesn't. Um, So what do you think happens if you have 70 different gender pronouns? How many generations do you think that's going to survive? I think, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) the point is is that words are tools. And, you know, when words no longer have function, we ditch them. And then when we need new words, we invent them. But, you know, you can try and enforce 70 different gender
0: um, pronouns. you try you were you cut out there briefly you yeah. said when you try to enforce 70 different gender pronouns and then it kind of cut out
1: oh yeah so if you try and enforce 70 different gender pronouns all that's going to happen is, is that you know the users of the language define the language and they're going to be like nah not going to learn all those words and you know kids kids do this naturally in terms of reshaping the language where they constantly are you know, they're trying to do things like say, you know, I eated the peschetti, and they're reshaping the language to make it easier and easier to speak. And then, you know, we tend to correct that and say, no, it's I ate the spaghetti. Um, but, you know, the, they're inevitably over time, the sort of the trend of languages is they get simpler and simpler um to be more and more useful so if you look at for example i mean i think the the best example of this is so you're going to learn a swedish verb today congratulations and it's the <laughs> it's the swedish verb to be and so you know in english we have i am you are he is she is we are they are and so on in swedish it's jag är du är hon är the or. <laughs> the or. So what happens is that over time, they were just like, yeah, we don't need all those variations with am, is, and are. We can just have r. So uh, the same thing would happen with these 70 different gender pronouns if you actually didn't play it out. is that pretty quickly the next generation would be like, yeah, that's dumb. Not doing that. Um, no, that, so that makes sense. It's just so silly. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, I 100% agree. It's, it just seems uh, – it's just ridiculous. And, it's, and, it, and what's interesting too is like a lot of older people that consider themselves liberal or Democrats still have no idea even about the craziness that's going on on college campuses. Like I talked, like I talked to my mom about it because my mom will like – because I'll be trolling, blatantly trolling on Facebook – and like some stuff, like I posted something about men's rights, and I didn't even know there was like this crazy group called Men's Rights. Uh-huh. And my mom like just started going on. It was something about circumcision, and I I I literally will try to just kind of troll, and then try to get a conversation going out of it, or filter out crazy SJWs that I might be friends with. And uh, and it's 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 just kind of interesting because my mom is just so uh, she's just so naive to what's going on with with that and i just look like, because my mom's like 58 and i just imagine like always been hardcore democrat and and i just imagine that it, you know it's interesting because you hear jordan peterson talking about well biologists don't realize that they're the next person that this group is going to go after if they keep their yeah. momentum and and it's it's interesting because you know I, I look at people like my mom and it's like you know eventually my mom could be in that next group of people that they don't even know that they're going to be considered oppressive and all this other bullshit or, Oh, you're part of the white patriarchy and all this other shit. And it's, it's so, it's so crazy. And it, and it, kind of, um, you know, you talk about, I, it was really interesting hearing you talk about, you know, the dangers of fundamentalism and, and it's, and I didn't really think about it like that because I, I think about like, I, I'd, I'd considered myself libertarian until I started hanging around other libertarians. And I was like, Oh, they're kind of, kind of annoying like and then and then like i considered i considered myself anarchist and before like all my hillbilly crew like we all kind of consider ourselves that but that's not the topic of conversation all the time it's just like you know we're going to put this ideology in our back pocket and we're going to try Mm -hmm. to live by these principles and and but it's like a lot of times you go to like i've been to to I met some cool people at these festivals too. So I don't want to – like I went to this – my friend Alma has this thing, the Jackal Freedom Festival. And there's a lot of cool people there. But it attracts everybody. And there's – and I just feel like even at like – and it feels the same way when I I went to go see Milo Talk at uh, OSU, um, which my buddy actually caused him to break his phone, which is actually a funny story. But uh, because he wanted like a high five and Milo like went to give him a high five and dropped his phone and shattered his screen. And oh it was, man, it was pretty funny, but you know, even there, it's it's not that different. Like I just feel like it's just a different group of like fundamentalism is just a way I think for people to to feel like they're better than other people, and yep. and, and I don't know if you notice the same thing with the I'm sure you do with the because it's like when I hear you talk, I'm like you know I, I'm sure Hunter has similar values that I have. Like I think he probably is for less government, he probably is for more freedom and less regulation, but at the same time. When you talk about, you know, the extremists or the fundamentalists, it's like, you know, that makes a good point, man. They're so fucking annoying. And it's like, well, what are you doing besides talking and complaining? Like, are you actually, are you actually, like, it, it, to me, it's like there's a, there's a crossroads to where you just talk about the stuff that you're against. And then you realize that it's just going to be more productive to to get on a pulpit and talk about the things that you're really about.
1: Yeah. And I I think the key thing is also is is that that small group of whack jobs destroys the reputation of the reasonable majority. So what ends – my mother, you know, same thing, you know, classical liberal – and, you know, she didn't understand all of this stuff. So she heard, social, you know, Jordan Peterson and she was like, who is this guy? Like, what is he talking about? And I literally had to break it down for her. Yeah. These are the things that are happening on college campuses. What you don't understand. I have an Uncle Bill, too, by the way. What you don't <laughs> understand. And, and Uncle Bill, by the way, like has a one news diet and that is Fox News. Like, yeah. that's, that
0: sounds that's, like my Uncle Bill. That, Uncle Bill yeah. My Uncle Bill lives in the hollers of Kentucky. And my yeah. grandpa always said, because it's my grandpa's brother, if my Uncle Bill could just zip up that part of the world, he would be content, like, and not have to worry about anything.
1: It must be something about Uncle Bill's. I don't know. <laughs> what it is. Um, but, you know, Uncle Bill, uh, you know, was was fully on board with the uh, the whole secret. Obama's a secret Muslim thing. And, you know, mine was, uh, too. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So, uh, you know, I was like, why Why do you think that Uncle Bill has this thing about libtards? Like, why do you think he has this thing about, you know, liberals and that he has these ideas about liberals, even though his own sister is a liberal and is clearly not thinking all of these wacky things that he thinks liberals think? And it's because... Fox News takes stuff like the behavior of social justice warriors on college campuses and plays it nonstop on Fox News. So a small group of whack jobs can destroy the reputation of, you know, what is frankly a fairly reasonable group of people like your mom and my mom. And there are disagreements, you know, between, say, libertarians and people like, you know, your mom and my mom. But clearly, wherever we stand on the political spectrum, we're able to talk to our moms and, you know, potentially have productive conversations. So it's very, very much uh, what is happening. I think I cut out again.
0: Yeah, you cut out again. You okay, said uh, it was uh, right after uh, productive conversations.
1: So it's very much the same thing as what is happening for, you know, Arabs in the Middle East with ISIS. Um You know, are ISIS whack jobs? Yes, 100%. They are a death cult and they are terrible. Uh, Is Al Qaeda, you know, are they whack jobs? 100%. But there are 1.6 billion Muslims. And, you know, the problem is, again, that the stereotype, humans have to stereotype. The question is, what is your stereotype formed around? And so for Brian Callan and I, you know, I was born in Saudi Arabia. You know, Brian also lived in you know Lebanon and all over the place, and so <clears throat> you spend time in the Middle East, and you know the majority of people everywhere you go, like they want to have to be able to support their family, they want a good life, you know, they want the occasional vacation, <laughs> they want all of these things, um, and then what happens is though is, is that what you see on the news is this fringe majority that uh, is just on some bizarre ideological trip and wants to feel superior to everybody and utterly screws up the conversation. Um,
0: Yeah. Well, because they, yeah. Yeah. I I, 100% agree. Like growing up in Toledo, like most of my friends, uh, like Toledo is really close to Detroit and Dearborn's in Detroit. So like there's a ton of Lebanese and there's a mm -hmm. ton of Middle Easterners there. And I mean, my one of my best friends, his mom is actually hillbilly, and his dad is from Lebanon. So, like, you know, I always got along well, and I'd always go there for Ramadan and feast and eat great food. And it's, I feel like a lot of it is, you know, go eat dinner with these people with people, and you'll see most of these families are just like us. They share similar values. We might we might have different religions. I mean, I I think they're crazy for not enjoying delicious bacon, but that's just me. <laughs> Like I don't know how they do it but at the same yeah. time like you know if when it comes to food if you want to eat good meat you know you could get halal meat for pretty cheap and, the, and chances are it's going to have a lot less hormones in it than something you would get at a normal grocery store. So sorry for interrupting you but I'm a, I'm 100% on on the same page as you.
1: Well, but I think that's I mean that's the key is food. You know, when you sit down with people and you break bread then you have a totally different uh, relationship with them and their culture. And then your stereotype is formed around your buddy who, you know, has a hillbilly parent and a Lebanese parent. And, you know, now you uh, interpret everything that happens in the Arab world in a different way. And it's the same thing with libertarianism. Like I've met people who, you know, a lot of people are like libertarians or whack jobs. And what they're actually reacting to are those super, you know, fundamentalist and cap libertarians. And that's their impression of a libertarian where they're like, oh, you're the guys who want to remove all government and basically take us back to the Stone Age um, where there is a competition of violence and everybody has sort of private militias. Yeah. Warlords. That sounds fun. Somalia. Let's do that. And so the what happens is, is that these words like liberal or conservative or libertarian, so much of the basic breakdown in conversation becomes about how different people are interpreting them. So libertarian or even anarchist means one thing to you and your buddies, but then you say it to somebody else and they're reacting to a totally different thing. They're reacting to some, you know, ANCAP guy um, who, you know, wants to essentially pare back all government. And you're like, no, that's not me at all. Um, And so that's so much of why the conversation has turned so unproductive is because there are these very uh, emotionally charged individuals who are trying to feel better than everybody, who are utterly fucking up the reputation of everybody else. Yeah, and it's
0: weird, too, because I do kind of fall in the category of let's roll back all government. But a, a lot of it is revolved around me. It's like, mm-hmm. man, I'm a responsible adult. I don't need this bullshit. Like, why do I have to pay food police to say that I'm organic? So fuck that. Like, if you want to come see my farm, you can see I don't spray any chemicals. I have really healthy soil. And it's like, you know, I, for me, it's, it, it's like kind of this weird idea because, like, you know, you go down that path and then you're like, oh, let's, you know, let's be voluntarious. Let's, let's embrace the non-aggression principle and let's do that. But the other aspect is, man, if people are desperate and like, you know, it's, it's just like why you want to always have a contract with somebody, even if it's your friend or I'm, I'm even mm-hmm. for a contract when you get married, even if neither of you have money and it's just so you can remain friends. Because when people get desperate and their family's involved and it comes to feeding their family, man, that person that's rational or, well, as we know, nobody's really rational but, like, that person who is, like, this, this loving person to, in your life can quickly flip a switch if their family's involved or if it comes down to feeding their family. So it's it's something I toy with quite a bit in my brain. Like, you know, it, I personally, I'm not a fan of most governments. I think I'd be more comfortable. Like, I mean, ultimately, I think it, it, a government, if we rolled back to less federal government and more kind of city-state sort of thing, I think that would work. But then even then, it's like... Well, now we have to, what about the, um, what about the, uh, uh, there's a word I'm thinking of. What about all the consequences of all the bad shit the U.S. has been doing over the years? Like, if we, if we do get rid of our military, what's going to happen? And then it's like, so, I don't know, man. Like, I think it is something to, to think about and contemplate. So, I think in, in my, my philosophy, and my fantasy world, we would have city-states. And I think... You know, I I think for me, that's why it's like, you know, I'm I'm really trying to be a local food guy. Like, I mean, my my step is to kind of create a create an aggregator and have it grow from just supplying restaurants with salad mix and microgreens to growing into having something to where my friends and I can create a co-op and then, you know, you can get your meat and vegetables and everything from us for most of the year. And I think that's ultimately, you know, that's creating an impact locally. In in something that I believe in, and I think it is getting us more closer to rolling back globalism, but at the same time, it's, it's, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, let's play it out. Like, what if, what if, what if all of a sudden we didn't have a federal government, it'd be chaos, man. I mean, there's yeah. people that, that do just behave because there are police. I mean, there are people in our world that are monsters as Jordan Peterson would say, and there's monsters inside that they haven't tamed. And if you remove police, a very real thing happens to those people and they don't, and it's, they're going to change the way they act. I mean, so man, it's, it's something I, I struggle with. And I think ideologically, I, I, I think that, you know, the state is a monopoly on violence in a lot of ways. However, you just can't remove it. Like there's, there's no way. I mean, there'd be too much backlash.
1: Well, and the, the key thing is realizing that the point of the state is a monopoly on violence, and, you know, that's, I think, the, the where a lot of people get tripped up, is they don't understand that what they see as a, what ANCAPers see as a bug is actually the feature, the core feature of government. Um, and so that's, you know, if you, look at, if you look at the evolution of human societies, you have small-scale tribes. And then what happens is those tribes routinely go and wipe each other out, you know, down to the last man. They'll kill the babies, they'll do the whole thing. And so what ends up happening is, is that creates a competition of violence between those tribes. And so now what those tribes do is they band together with other tribes. And so now you have band-level societies where now you have three tribes against one. Well, that provides you with a certain measure of security from violence. And then over time, you build larger and larger and larger confederations of people until you end up with you know, the Babylonian Empire and the Egyptian Empire and the Chinese Empire. And then, you know, what that does is you have to that, you know, although Pharaoh is terrible, what Pharaoh is doing is is that he is acting as Hobbes's Leviathan, where he acts as essentially this godfather type figure, this tyrant who uh, keeps the people in line. And because he has unchecked power, he robs them blind, (laughs) you know, and he oppresses them and he enslaves them and he does all of that. And so then what happens is that to solve that problem, you then have the evolution of rule of law, which is really what happens with England and the Glorious Revolution, where now even the king is accountable to the law. And so that makes a slightly more accountable society, and then you have democracy. And the point of democracy is you know, now the power of the government rests on the power of the people, and so there are even better accountability mechanisms now, part of what's happened in the United States is that those accountability mechanisms have broken down because people are not voting or they're disengaged or they're not well informed or, uh, you know, there's factionalism has set in where people uh, who might be able to productively compromise aren't able to have productive conversations. And we're really, you know, reaching the end, I think, of a, of a historical cycle where when you have an external threat like the Nazis and like what happened in World War II, the country comes together um, and there is a level of unity and a willingness to work out differences. And in the wake of World War II, uh, the big concern was actually that there wasn't enough political difference between the Republicans and Democrats. They were on the same page too much um because they really talked out their differences and they figured out what they wanted to do and then what happens is that as you get further and further away from these big sort of crisis events the social glue that holds the society together begins to break down and you know there becomes much more and so in the 80s you have that me generation of the baby boomers where everybody's just thinking about themselves and they're not thinking about Uh, What does the society need? How do we work together? How do we productively work out our differences? And there's a series of unhealthy rent-seeking behaviors where you have this unholy alliance between government and industry, um, and you start to have these massive concentrations of wealth. Um, So I think that the challenge is, and a large part of what Brian and I want to do with Mixed Mental Arts, is to basically restore accountability to leaders all over the world – by creating a well-informed populace yeah. um, that, that has a framework for being able to make sense of these issues and to be able to do things like call out the fundamentalists in their own midst because uh, you know, there, the, so much of this division that, that exists globally is because of there are people who profit from that division. That's yeah. their whole stick. That's their brand. And they're not going to give up their brand until it's clear that their brand has no market.
0: No, I mean, if, I mean that makes a hundred percent sense because you look at just key fundamentalists of atheism. You have you know Sam Harris, and you have uh, the uh, that British guy, biology oh,
1: guy. <laughs> oh, Richard Dawkins. Richard
0: Dawkins, um, yeah, and they make money from being atheists, right? And yeah. it's and it's kind of weird too because it's like atheism's reared its. It's like there's even the divide in atheism now because I think most SJWs consider themselves athe- atheist, and and it's 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 kind of weird to see. And it's like I remember the point to where atheists became more annoying than born agains, and it seemed like it happened in the mid two thousands, uh, yep. like around two thousand five, two thousand six. Like it, you know, it stopped being you know proselytizing Christians, and it started being. Proselytizing atheists that say they don't have a religion, or, but they don't necessarily see their own dogma, and then it's it's like, well, I don't want to identify with them because they're so annoying, and I feel like, <laughs> and that's and but do you do you feel the same? And it's it's kind of like I feel like that's been my path of who don't like because there was a time where I was Catholic, then I thought I was more atheist, and now I think I just kind of have my own beliefs, and then it's just like the further you get away from labels, it's like the more comfortable and the better it is. I mean, you're, you're just, you know, you're just Hunter or I'm just Drew. And, and I, and I, and I would rather, instead of locking myself in a box and saying, I have to believe this because I'm an atheist, like, or I have to believe this because I'm an anarchist. And based on those principles, like I can't have government or I can't have this idea of, uh, anything like that, that it, you know, it, it makes you more dynamic as a human to, to kind of sort things out. Like I think, I think reading Scott Adams' blog this year has really kind of helped me with that and like just and it's interesting too because you know, he he talks heavy about persuasion. And then my friend uh, Brett Vinat from School Sucks podcast, he started uh playing some old Tom Woods clips of Jonathan Haidt on Tom Woods, and then I, I listened to Jonathan Haidt on your guys' show too, and I heard you kind of saying the same thing, and it's you know, the the faster we kind of realize that we're really not rational human beings. The easier it is to kind of get yourself, and I think, you know, like Scott Adams kind of says it best. You know, you're you're rational when you're balancing a checkbook or doing a math equation or something like that, but you know, you're never you're never thinking without your emotions, and y- you've talked about that too, and and Jonathan Haidt even says, you know, if you're if you're looking to persuade somebody, you persuade the elephant, which is your subconscious mind, not the not the driver of the elephant, who's really just that's your conscious mind. Um, I think that all makes sense of what I'm trying to say, uh, Hunter.
1: <laughs> no, it makes perfect sense. I mean, yeah, so the, a, lot of, a lot of what this comes down to, and, you know, there are many paths to it, whether it's the Scott Adams path or the John Hyatt path um, or, you know, the Buddhist path or even actually the Christian path is this understanding that humans are being driven by their intuitions all the time. And, you know, that's the elephant. And we have the ability to, you know, we have this rider, which is, you know, the ability to reflect and to see, do my intuitions make sense? Like, oh, yes, I'm really attracted to this girl uh, who has a tramp stamp. But, you know, she did say that thing about how she had to go powder her nose and then she came back and there was like a little blood trickling from her nose. Is this like a really good idea? Is this like real dating material? And so the writer could kick in and you could start to like be like, oh, but she's so hot and train wrecky. And then, you know, you can have that fight with yourself where you're like, yeah, but probably not a good idea. I do have a job interview first thing in the morning. Do you think that's so- like
0: the, the hillbilly <laughs> in us that what, trashy white girls are just kind of kryptonite?
1: I, I, I think – I mean I think it's not, it's not just trashy white girls. I think there is something uh, definitively sexually attractive that I do not understand about my own brain about train wrecks. Yeah. Because uh, um, like also like, I mean, you know, Russian women – like just so emotionally unavailable and haughty and condescending and just like you can there can be a lot of crazy there
0: yeah Uh, but then also too you gotta they always have family members that are russian men too and that's the scary i mean i'm cool with a lot of russians there's a lot of russians in columbus but i remember i was working at this nightclub and we had a lot of russians that would come through and my buddy and i kind of set the parameters of even if they're interested stay away from the russian women yeah, because it's just like, man, they, they do, man. It's just like they they're a very tight group, and you do not want to piss them off.
1: Nope. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, I think there's there's definitely something to that sort of the danger, the unpredictability. I think that's a lot of what the uh, the appeal of that is. But the point is that, as you're saying, we can recognize, oh wait, like this is probably not a good idea. Yes, I'm attracted to this girl. In the short term, it would be amazing to have sex with her. But then I'm going to have to deal with all of her crazy Russian relatives. Um, And so not going to go there. (laughs) Um, But so and I mean, that that is I mean, you know, I, I, I play out that script because I think it's a script we can all recognize where it is really that dance between, you know, intuition and what you feel like doing and then reflection of like really sort of just sort of gaming it out and being like, okay, I do this. What happens um and you know that's that's how you develop long term thinking. Um <laughs> you know, is by thinking about okay, what happens if I do sleep with the crazy Russian girl? Yeah and and then you sort of like look over to the right and you're like, ah yes, Vlad and Ivan. <laughs> <Yvonne." laughs> that's what happens. <laughs> um so uh yeah. And I and I think um I think you know the the more we all understand and I mean this is where the culture part becomes so important is you know the Russians have picked up a culture the hillbillies have picked up a culture the weirds have picked up a culture the arabs have picked up a culture and that it, the the opportunity for all of us and the challenge for all of us is to now reflect and sort through a lot of this cultural baggage that we've picked up and figure out what are the parts that we like and we want to reconnect with like you know this sort of small scale farming and what are the parts that we want to, you know, move past uh, like being a psychotic Russian um.
0: <laughs> or, or a psychotic hillbilly either.
1: or a psychotic hillbilly? Yeah. I mean, you know that. I think that J.D. Vance does a great job of sort of outlining the the price that hillbillies often pay for uh, their propensity towards violence that is maybe a little higher than the weirds. Um. Yeah. No, I mean, my grandpa
0: was always kind of. It's weird because, like, I remember we'd always go to, like, different... My grandpa's just a frugal guy. Like, I've never paid more than a thousand bucks for a car just because he kind of mm-hmm. taught me how to shop for cars that you could fix for cheap or, or just... I'd always manage to find good deals Or they'd find me. I remember we were at this auction and the gate was open. We were looking at these cars, and this guy was being so disrespectful to my grandpa. Like, if the guy would have been disrespectful to me, I would have blown it off. But because mm-hmm. it was my grandfather... I was ready to lose my mind and murder this guy. Like yeah. I was like, "Why are you talking to him like that, man? Like you're the dumbass who left the gate open." And like my grandpa's like, "Buddy, you need to you need to calm down. You need to yeah. calm down." And it's like and it's like it, it and it was just such a weird thing or it's it's the same thing if somebody, I mean, just like JD talks about in that book, if somebody was talking about my mom when I was a kid, "Oh man, it's fighting time." Or just anything like that, and it and it it took me a while to get most of that out of me. But even then, like sometimes it just clicks. Like if I see somebody standing in my yard that shouldn't be there, it's like, mm-hmm. oh man, it's time to fight. Like, what are you doing in my yard, man? And then yeah. if if they're just like a salesperson or something, like usually it's like okay, I can tone it down real quick because I can relate because I was in sales. But otherwise, mm-hmm. it's like if they're just some kid hanging out or some adult hanging out in front of my house I want to know why they're what they're doing there like what's your deal so and the violence kind of comes that's all that's my point sorry hunter
1: well and I think that's the point the violence kind of comes and you know in terms of you know how do we move towards a better society and how do we um you know a lot of that violence that is coming is you know this old cultural stuff and so we can deal with it and work through it but I think the interesting thing about, like, part of what I love about what you guys are doing in your community is that, um, you know, humans need tribe and they need community. And I think that, you know, that's so much of what's broken down is uh, the ability to sort of have a local tribe. And so I think ideally, as we sort of start to think about what a society look like, you know, you need these, you need really strong local communities but then build up into regional communities and then build up to the federal level. Um, But where all of those levels are holding each other accountable and really checking each other's power.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the nice thing. Like we don't, nobody's, nobody's in charge here in our community. I think people like to gravitate towards others. And I think like other people inspire people. Like I, you know, hopefully I inspire people with my podcast or I always try to show up to our events, but you know my good friend Greg who I get by my pig from or you know I never thought I would be butchering my own chicken or my own turkey last year and I fortunately met Greg and he was listening to the show and then we just started doing you know hol- holding events and it was like you know he needed help butchering birds and instead of sending it to a butcher we could do it all on his farm and then mm-hmm. we all we'd all learn a skill and he'd help out he gave us all a free chicken and, and it was the same thing with, you know, Thanksgiving turkey time. Like, I you know, they're all heritage breed birds. So, you know, I, I thought it was pretty cool to butcher my own Thanksgiving turkey and take it to my grandfather who, you know, always said to me, you know, buddy, you know, it's good that you're learning these skills, but you always got to keep in mind that I knew these skills because I had to to survive. And, it's, mm-hmm. and it's, so it is kind of a flip of the switch because now, you know, you're, learning these skills are, is more of a privilege in the actual sense of the word versus, you know, this is what we have to do. And so it's, it's good to, because if there ever is a time to where I, I have to lo- know how to do it, I know how to do it. But I think it's just skills that you don't want to forget, whether it be making your own alcohol. Like I make my own meads. Um, I make my own ciders and it's, it's pretty easy to do. Um, you just get some honey and th- you just use different recipes. Or if you know a friend that a secret friend who has a secret still and wants, <laughs> wants access to your maple water. Like I tapped, I tapped because it's a weird thing, Hunter, because in Ohio, apparently it's legal to have a still and it's legal to have the product of the still, but it's not actually legal to use it. So I don't, yeah. I don't know how that works. There's these weird goofy laws with it, but you know, I tapped my maple tree because I was like, well, I think that'd be cool to do. And then i check it. And I'm like, Oh shit, I got five gallons. I'm flying off to Florida tomorrow. And this stuff goes bad quickly. And that's the whole mm-hmm. thing. Whenever, like, maple water is really good for you and it tastes like a better coconut water. But when mm-hmm. you like when you get it from a store, there's so many preservatives in it that it's just not the same thing. It goes bad pretty quick. So, because there's a there's a natural yeast in it, so it will actually start to ferment on its own. So my buddy came and got it and he was actually like, oh, man, I didn't get a chance to tap a tree. I've been wanting to try to make a whiskey out of it. And I was like, well, listen, man, you can have all this. Just give me some some maple. So it made me a maple whiskey and a maple shine. And the maple shine is at my grandfather's. Maybe, allegedly. I'm not going to say I actually have it. But if if, <laughs> if I were to have this shine, it would be there. But it's it's just like, you know, it's just fun, man. I mean, it's it's fun to... To 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 have that relationship with, with what you are consuming, like to – whether it be your food or your alcohol. And, you know, I mean drinking alcohol is never really that good for you, but I'd prefer – like I, I don't want – I mean the, just the amount of money you save in taxes if you make yeah. your own wine or your own mead. I mean if,
1: – If being the crucial word there. Yeah. yeah if. if. If you're actually <laughs> doing
0: that. I think it's actually legal to make my own mead. I just can't sell it. Um, so I I can say that, but yeah, if, but (laughs) you know, you get a gallon of, uh, I mean, if you're just doing like a hard cider, you get a gallon of cider and you can just throw yeast in it or a gallon of apple juice and just throw yeast in it and back sweeten it. Or, you know, and you, and you have a gallon of booze for like eight or 10 bucks versus a six pack, which of craft beer, which is $10. So it's, uh. I just – you know, it it just gets you kind of closer to the old ways. And I think even the same with working up a pig or tomorrow – or no, today's Thursday. So Saturday, we actually – because I'm almost out of half a pig that I got in uh, October. And I've just been – I mean, I, surprisingly, I was surprised about how fast. Like I have some, some cuts that I'm going to save for my smoker or even like learning how to use a smoker. That was something else that I wanted to learn how to do. And uh, so – Um, I'm kind of run. I ran out of ground and I made all my own sausage and everything. And, um, so I was looking to get some hundred percent grass fed beef. And then we found a guy who was just looking to downsize. Like he was, he was breeding. So he had an extra, an extra bowl. It doesn't need. So he gave it to us for a really ridiculously low price. So, but to save money, we've never, we've never done this, but we're going to work up our own, our own bowl. So we're going to, we're going to kill it Saturday. And we're gonna humanely kill it. Like it's not gonna feel pain, hopefully. And then uh then you have to let it hang for a week so the rigor mortis gets out and then we're gonna then I'm gonna get my quarter of a cow and I'm gonna butcher it myself and grind it into ground and so it should be should be fun, man. I mean it's gonna take a lot of time, but it's like, you know, that's time that is well spent. It's not something that I don't mind if I'm not getting paid. Like I'm just trying to use my you know, it's something that I'm interested in doing because it's like, you know, how cool I mean, number one, it's pretty cool. Like that's the, that is yeah. the cool thing about it is like it's cool to say, you know, yeah, I butchered my own pig or I butchered my own bull. Eventually, I'd like to go hunting and butcher my own beer like I, deer, not beer, but deer. <laughs> but like it's 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 cool. And, it, and, you know, it's cool to hear Rogan really talk about hunting and everything. But, you know, I think the aspect of animal husbandry is powerful, too, because, you know, when you have an animal that you're raising, it's. It's it's a weird relationship. Like yes, it is food, but you know, you have um you have a relationship with especially a pig. Like I had this guy on uh Mark Essig. He wrote this book, Humble, The Lesser Beast, and it's all about the history of our relationship with pigs and how pigs have kind of domesticated themselves. That's like a theory and the reason why it's it's a lot of cultures shy away from pig is because, I mean, number one, like pigs can eat anything and you can fatten them up Mm. eating like human feces even. And nobody really wants to eat a pig that has eaten human feces. So like a lot of cultures, depending on how pigs interacted with that culture is the reason why they do or don't eat it. Like Romans put pigs, like Romans had pigs in the woods. So did uh, Brits back in the day. Like they used to sell woods based on how many pigs you could fit in it um, Mm. to raise pigs. So it's, it's like an interesting thing. So it's not even like, so by learning these old ways of of getting this relationship with pig, it's like, I'm learning more about history of like going way back. And, and, uh, so I don't know, man, it's, 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 it's a fun journey and it's like a practical education. So I think about, um, I mean, like, I know you're, you're, you're a, a professional educator in a, in a lot of ways, like, you know, you've wrote the book and you had a professional tutoring thing. Our company nut thing but it's just like even when it comes to homeschooling so if you have a homestead and there's a lot of listeners that i have that homeschool their own kids and it's like their kids are totally different than mm-hmm. than like kids that are going to public schools like you know i mean they might be a little bit more sheltered but at the same time like they're getting a totally different education like hands-on experience of going and collecting eggs butchering animals like stuff like that and and it's and it's a practical education so where you know if they ask questions about, you know, why do we butcher animals? And then, you know, you, you read them a, a book like Lesser Beast or something, and then give them the full history of pigs. And while you're learning the history of pigs, you're actually learning a lot about human history. And it's, um, so I don't know, like it's, 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 it's been a fun journey this past, the past couple of years. And it's, and it, and the funny thing is Hunter, it's all about, you know, just connecting to my own culture and my own roots, which it's also weird because I feel like as white people, it's like frowned upon in a lot of ways. So, and it's, it's in in mainstream culture in a lot of ways. Um, sorry, man. I think the coffee kicked in there, Hunter, cause I went on a long ass oh, rant there.
1: That, let's never apologize for, uh, for co- caffeinating. I mean, you know, that, <laughs> that is, that is really one of the, uh, the, you know, I mean, the America is a coffee nation. It's none of this tea English bullshit. Um, so no, I mean, I, I, uh, I think that's all fantastic. And I mean, I think, I mean, there's uh, a few things to pick out there. One, um, you know, I mean, yes, kids who grew up in the countryside and are homesteading are sh- more sheltered in one way. But in another sense, you know, the number of kids who grow up in a city and have almost no exposure to nature and no exposure to wildlife, I mean, that's just a different form of being sheltered. Yeah. Um, so I don't I don't think it's to, you know, uh I think there's there's often and I think what's interesting to there's a there's a note of apology in a lot of what you're saying where you're like I'm doing this thing and in some sense I feel I need to apologize for it because I don't need to grow my own food to survive um and you know that I'm embracing and connecting with my own culture Um, even though I feel like as white people, our culture is just supposed to be shameful because the conquest of the Americas and because of, you know, imperialism and all of these other things. And the reality is that, you know, I think it's, it's worth unpacking, uh, it's, it's worth unpacking, you know, where, you know, what, what was the conquest of the Americas really about and what was imperialism really about? And it was about power and when one group of humans has better tools and better technologies and has more power uh, and there's no accountability or check on that power, then they're going to abuse that power. Um, and, you know, some of that was a deliberate, intentional abuse of power uh, in some of the imperialist experience. Sometimes there was a genuine desire to try and make things better. And then a lot of it was just ignorance. Um, I mean, crucially, so many of the, so much of the reason why Native Americans were wiped out en masse was because the Europeans brought over all these diseases like smallpox uh, that Native Americans had had no exposure to. And that that, you know, why was Cortez with 300 men able to defeat the Aztec Empire? It's because they were mangy, disease ridden Spaniards.
0: There's, uh, <laughs> there's actually a good uh, book, too, um, about how livestock animals actually helped take out the Native Americans, too, because they would just let the cows and pigs grow free and the mm-hmm. cows and pigs would take out the uh, natives crops like oh, the, yeah. the wild crops that they would put somewhere and that's interesting too like our domestication of animals or of nature kind of attacked or took them out as well along with the disease um anyways sorry sorry for well
1: you and, you. well and crucially and all of those diseases came from uh livestock yeah. like smallpox was cow cowpox you know uh tuberculosis like all of these diseases came from uh, our livestock, so a lot of it this is the sort of the jared diamond guns drills and germs and steel bit is you know it comes from uh, our animal husbandry I mean that was that was so much of what made the conquest of the Americas possible whereas you know the native peoples in the Americas you know they had turkeys and llamas and guinea pigs, but they and the dog but they didn't have you know cows uh, geese, you know, chicken, pigs, um, goats, horses. horses. Um, and so, you know, a lot of it was, you know, it was this relationship with animals that you're talking about. Um, so I, I mean, I think, I think the point is, is that I, I think it's what you're doing is fantastic because you're on a personal journey, both to, um, I mean, I think it's, it's healthy and normal. Like, you know, humans want a relationship with their food. Um, that's something very primal and we want to feel connected to that. And I think that it's important to realize when your culture is what's insane, not you and the culture that developed after world war two, you know, that generation had such a, had the experience of the depression and the experience of world war two. And so, you know, there was this trauma of hunger And so naturally what they wanted to do was just produce as much food, as many calories as possible, as cheaply as possible. And so that's why you get factory farming. Um, But that's now created a whole series of other problems in terms of obesity, health, um, you know, what needs to happen when you're doing uh, a lot of uh, that sort of industrial agriculture there are, you know there are there are choices that are made in terms of how that food is produced that sets up health problems later further down the line. so the challenge is now, how do we evolve towards a food system um, that is still able to feed everyone? obviously that's important um, but that also produces better quality food and prov- provides people with a connection to their food uh, and there's no easy answer to that, but I'm glad that you guys are doing the hard work of trying to figure it out. <laughs> Yeah,
0: thank you it's oh no problem man it's a lot of fun but it's like you know we're in Ohio so we should do that like it's like we're not it's 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 interesting man but it it's uh then and, you, and you're welcome because you said thank you uh, but it's it's interesting man it's it's fun I mean it's a lot of fun and it's you know I've, I've connected with so many people because of it and it's and then it's it's also at the same token like you you'd look at it from the community aspect like where would we be without Twitter which might not be around that much longer anyways with how much money that they keep losing. Uh, Facebook and Instagram, like, where would we be? Like, how would we be connecting with people? And I think that's the biggest thing is a lot of... The cool thing is a lot of this, uh, of our little communities spurred from word of mouth. Like, people hear about what's going on and then they look us up on Facebook or something. And then they want to they connect. Like, even a guy yesterday I connected with and, and it was from my old uh, and, and cap crowd... And it was like, <laughs> and, and it's interesting too, because we were talking and, uh, it, you know, and we kind of agreed. I, he's like, yeah, it's a great time. You get to connect with a lot of people. And I was like, yeah, I mean, sometimes though the parroting gets out of hand. Cause everyone wants to sound like Stefan Molyneux and he's like, oh, you know, I a hundred percent agree. But even, you know, a lot of this, what I came from was, uh, like permaculture and permaculture was like this bug that that hit and it's like permanent agriculture and a lot of it's just the old ways and and it's it's funny because that's how I got on this path was I was like oh what's permaculture I kept looking it up and then I got to my friend Greg and he's like man I just call it being a hillbilly like and I was like (laughs) oh yeah like I never thought about it so it's like I went on this long path just to figure out that the answers were already in my past in that sense and and it's and it's even I mean that's interesting too man like I feel like the divide of you know, get shit done and let's complain and be social justice warriors is is falling amongst multiple communities like that have become larger. And like, cause you see it a lot in permaculture too. I don't know how familiar you are with permaculture Hunter, but uh, it's, it's this cool idea about, you know, harvesting your water. Like if you look at California, like California really should have better stuff in place to harvest water due to the Mm -hmm. lack of rainfall that it's been getting. And, and it's, and that's the whole idea. Like everybody harvests their own, you know, you, you harvest your own water and it's really, you kind of, it starts with like farming water. Um, but even like with my beds, like I have raised soil beds and so it's, and it's mainly the way they're designed is so, um, then I'll put wood chips in the walkways so it will harvest more water. So I'm trying to keep as much water as I can. And then you know you do different things to the land, like terracing hills and stuff like that. But you know people make it more about you know trying to sell stuff, and it and it and it gets taste. It's it's not tasteful because instead of actually going out and doing stuff and trying to work with nature, the land, you see people that are just trying to monetize off the fact that oh, get your PDC, and so and it's like a perm- permaculture design certificate. And then it's just basically like a, a McDojo black belt in a sense. Like it's uh-huh. – to me, it's really similar to martial arts where people are like, oh, I'm a black belt in karate. And it's like, oh, you're really good at getting your ass kicked by somebody that knows how to fight. And, it's, <laughs> and, that's, and that's kind of it. Like, you know, people like get these PDCs and they spend a 1000 bucks and they know a little bit more than what they did before when they really just need to get their hands in the soil – and yeah. do shit, man. And, and that's it's the same thing with, you know, fundamentalist ANCAPs. It's like, you know, I want to sit and complain and debate people on Facebook or or I want to debate Hunter because his, his co-host is a libertarian and, and Hunter shits on libertarians. And it's like, well, dude, why don't you prove – why don't you just say how you created this awesome business? Like, I mean, when I when I look at, you know, like an ANCAP move, like in my opinion, from if you were looking at it from a f- philosophical aspect – To me, it's always like entrepreneurship, right? Like you make, if you want to make a difference, make a difference with business. Like that's, that's, that's a prime way to do it. So Uber, like Uber is a, is a prime example of that to me or Airbnb, like, you know, you look at things that people hated. Nobody ever talked about that great experience they had in their taxi cab, but now everybody's, (laughs) everybody uses Uber. Now Uber will deliver you food or now like one of my side hustles right now, because I'm in between like the season and everything is I'm delivering food for this company called Skip the Dishes, and it's like, you know, I can make like twenty bucks an hour doing it, and then I just put aside money for taxes and expenses, and it's and it's and it's and it's all through business. So if you want to make a real difference, in my opinion, you, you do it with business or you do it with community. I mean, you do it with the you know ground level innovation, which is what I feel like we're doing with our community because it's you know, my goal is to figure out a way to, where we can all get paid and we can all like everybody because a lot of people just kind of have part-time or like farmsteads like it's not their full-time gig. And and getting in the commodity market I think is it's it's a hustle because scalability is a bitch, especially when it comes to raising animals. So uh, you can make more money with produce and it's easier to get into to restaurants and everything with produce, but eventually, you know, the goal is to have direct consumers which I've really not wanted to to deal with Hunter because of my experiences in retail and everything but it's just like if I want to help the most people that's that's going to be the way to do it so hopefully in a few years I can create something some kind of business and make a difference I mean that's that's my goal but I mean I got to start with the first year first and my main focus now is just to sell to restaurants and try to work with other vegetable farmers and just mainly sell salad mix man so it's it's like a you know everything is is stages but you know that's the whole thing for me with this podcast is, you know, if I'm going to say something like it, this is a great way for me to hold accountable is to have conversations with people about yourself. And then we go down these rabbit holes and then it kind of ties into it. And, uh, and I think that's, that's the key though, man, is like, if you want to make a difference, you got to do it with business or you got to do it, you know, talk about the things that you're for. And I think, and, and you guys do that with your show. I mean, and it was funny hearing you talk to Rogan, like, and it, it's something I was talking about before, like counting. It's so easy to troll him, like Eddie Bravo mm. trolls him all the time, and it's like I don't know why he falls into those traps all the time. But and you you kind of touched on that, like you know Callen is a smart guy, like Callen is a really nice guy, and so you guys are trying to get him, you know, you are trying to get him with all these professors because that's I mean, so I mean, let's talk about the Brian Callen show, Hunter, a little bit because uh, you're the co-host there and you help get these brilliant guests, and uh, we can talk about what is it? it's mind mind mental arts is that what you
1: said mixed mixed mental arts yeah. yeah so so i mean you know brian uh you know the the after i was born um uh, brian's dad was my dad's boss and so after i was born the first house that i went to was the callen house so i've literally known brian for my entire life the only person who knew me before that was you know my mother and the doctors <laughs> so um <laughs> The uh, you know and so like Brian and I have we've moved all over the world and we sort of floated in and out of each other's life and then I moved out to L.A. and you know wanted to act and you know my mother was like oh Jesus you're moving to L.A. to be an actor this is like my worst nightmare please call Brian Callen he's literally the only person i know in hollywood so i called up brian and brian said okay this is great like you know i'm gonna save you 10 years you're just admit that you're an actor admit that you're a writer and we'll get you into an acting class and then he proceeded to send me to a hotbed of scientology like it would be hard (laughs) the the acting class that he sent me to you'd be hard-pressed to find somewhere that was more thoroughly a recruiting ground for scientology than the place that brian callen sent me so um I went there. It was a, a, a very fascinating, amazing, interesting experience. Um, and then along the way, Brian and I would you know run into each other at family events, and we'd just start talking about books and books that we'd read and books that we enjoyed. And um, <clears throat> you know, Dove D- Davidoff, the stand-up comedian who's a b- buddy of Brian's, has this great thing, this great bit about what L.A. is like. Um and he says, you know, doves from New York and he says, you know, and you move out to LA and like there's just all these tens. Like there's all these like drop dead gorgeous women, and you're like, this is amazing, like this is so cool, uh, and you're like, ah, oh, I've never seen it so attractive, my brain. And then <laughs> he says, but it's a lot like swimming with dolphins. Because you get in there, and for the first half hour, you're like, this is so fucking magical, like a dolphin just touched my leg. Like, this is so great. And then after half an hour, you're like, it's cold, I'm wet, somebody please throw me a book. Um, and, you know, that is, that is really the experience. There's no shortage of gorgeous, beautiful people. But at a certain, to- at a certain point, all the style of L.A., it just becomes very empty and you want some substance. And so out of that, you know, Brian and I sort of ended up clinging to each other like two drowning men in a sea and just started talking about books and we would talk about books and Brian had this podcast, which was called man thoughts. And, you know, he was booking guests, but you know, he wasn't really taking the time or the effort to book decent guests. And so it was all, you know, uh, there was, you know, MMA fighters, um, and then uh, a lot of porn stars they were just a <laughs> lot of a lot of porn stars and some Canadians. And I said, you know, Brian, like you have how many downloads? And he said, however many downloads he had. And then I said, you know, if you were to reach out to a lot of these New York Times bestselling authors or these professors, they would kill to have that kind of audience. And he said, really? I was like, yeah. And he's like, they would talk to me. And I was like, yeah.
0: And so I just want to say, from experience, it's surprisingly easy to get an author to do your show. And it- oh. Uh, And because it's like they don't, you think when you read their book that oh they're so famous. It's like no man, like people don't read books. No, (laughs) people listen to podcasts.
1: Yep, and you know they'll do anything to get exposure for their ideas. I mean, the experience of writing a book is you know you spend five years doing it, however long it is, and it's an incredible amount of work. And then you know your your naive expectation is that you're going to publish this book and it will set the world on fire, and then. (laughs) you know the world doesn't react and so then you're like oh shit i have to do things to market this book and so you start you know taking whatever interviews you can so we ended up having you know we're now on episode 233 is the last one we did um and so we've interviewed hundreds of these you know academics authors scientists and uh Along the way, we started noticing that although they were, you know, brilliant in their little narrow field, that they had almost never heard of anything that was happening outside of their field. And so it was just like, at what point, what does this all add up to? Like, okay, you figured out this very specific piece of human biology or human psychology or, you know, how societies work or economics. But how does that add up to something big and practical that we can all use and implement? um in our daily lives and we realized well no one else is going to do that and so very much as you're saying rather than just sitting around and criticizing that we were like okay we'll build that and so we started uh you know about six months ago we started doing this thing called mixed mental arts where inspired by mixed martial arts we just started collapsing together all of these different styles of thinking to create a way of breaking down and making sense of the world um That drew on the best of everything that was available and our goal i mean what we really want is for this to very much develop like mixed martial arts developed where essentially it's not it's not that it's about us and it's not that there's an orthodox style it's that you know if you get the system going then people will start competing they will finding holes in each other's mental game and then you get the 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 real winner at the end of the day is not who wins in one argument or another argument it's the sport wins because the sport is constantly evolving into a better and better and more robust uh thinking style or fighting style um and so that's what we've been doing and you know part of what we started doing is you know, uh, essentially picking fights with certain fundamentalists who we feel are divisive. They're not really interested in trying to figure out answers. What they want to do is just sit around and critique. And it's funny that you said that because literally on the last episode, um, I was talking about how that's the big difference between what they're doing and what we're going to be doing. And I uh, quoted the famous Teddy Roosevelt quote about, you know, the man in the ring. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again. And I could read you the whole quote off my phone, but the point is... <laughs> I wouldn't mind, Hunter. I wouldn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a, it's an amazing quote, and that is really... Um, The distinction is that, you know, Brian is now, I won't say how old he is, um, and I'm 35. And at a certain point, you know, you read all of these different books, you get exposed to all of these different ideas. And then at a certain point, you're like, listen, clearly nobody else is going to do this. Like nobody else is going to collapse together all of this different science and research and all of these different books and all of these ideas into practical ideas that anybody anywhere can use. And so we were like, okay, we'll do that. And this was, you know, this isn't the first time that I've done this. It was the same thing that Katie O'Brien and I did with the State of Conspiracy, where we read all this neuroscience and psychology and we're like, this is fantastic. Every child should know about this. But clearly, academics weren't going to do that. And they weren't going to do that because the incentives of academia are to have a tiny little field that belongs to you. And so there's this massive territoriality where they talk about interdisciplinary work, but they don't really do it. And so we just were like, "Uh, we don't care, children, and we're going to do this for the kids. So we just sort of took anything that was useful and we collapsed that together and we put it in a book that was the book we wished we'd had in high school um and so brian and i are just doing very much the same thing with mixed mental arts we're just like okay we're gonna read everything uh we're gonna build a community of people so what's great about conversations like this is i end up being exposed to new ideas that i had never otherwise would have found like i didn't know about wendell berry now i'm gonna find out about wendell berry it's great (laughs) yeah
0: Wendell, wendell berry's great he wrote uh i'll send you some recommendations my friends at uh hand hewn actually turned me on and actually so he uh we read. He has a a a poem about turning the pig into human, and it's just about. Um, we read it. It's like a thing. It's a ritual we read before every time we we start to work up a pig, because you know it's if if you shoot a pig and you mit if you don't hit it at the right spot like because ideally so when you butcher a pig you shoot it in the head with like a twenty two and it knocks it out unconscious so then you can stick it and it won't feel any pain but you know if if you rush. And the whole idea is when you read the poem it, it kind of gets you to slow down and so you don't rush so you don't you don't actually hurt the pig because you know we mm-hmm. don't I mean is, is, is uh, con- popular to contrary belief of people that call me um, a murderer and stuff for killing pigs is that you know I don't I don't want the pig to feel any pain at all like I mean I'm, I'm a very I'm, I'm an animal guy I have three cats one was a crazy cat person. And I don't. I, I mean, I love animals. I'd hate for them to to feel pain. So, but unfortunately, I like to eat meat. So I I need to cultivate that relationship with my food, and that's it's, it's important to me because I I want to be conscious with what I'm doing. Like I want to have like a an intent about you know what I'm doing with my life, and I don't want to be, uh, I guess naive to what 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 I'm actually doing when I'm buying you know, a bunch of chicken wings or a bunch of ribs from a grocery store. I actually like to know how many animals that is. So it's it's a weird thing when you when you start killing your own pigs hunter and then you see all you can eat ribs, it kind of makes you uncomfortable because you're like, okay, that's how many pigs just died so I could have all you could eat ribs. Mm-hmm. Um and it's and you know, I mean I still like to eat wings and ribs, so I'm not gonna lie. But it's it's just, you know, I like being conscious with that. And yeah. and uh and I think that's So that's, that's the whole point of, you know, Wendell Berry. He's got some, uh, one book is, uh, sex freedom and community or something like that. And it's, that's a good book too. That's the one I'd recommend, but there's, I could, uh, if you have, I could actually send you some, uh, some EPUBs Hunter, if you read electronic books. Um, are
1: these are these legal ePubs or are is this uh, in the moonshine territory? Well, so I found them. <laughs> I
0: found them legally on the internet that people were sharing. Yeah. Uh, a lot of his books aren't actually in print, so they're not electronic print. So You would have to get them off Amazon, um, so you can support Wendell. I think Wendell's eighty-eight, so he's getting up there in age. I'm trying to get him on the show, but it's hard to get an eighty-eight year old on your show because they don't usually use things like email and stuff like that. So, well
1: where does he live?
0: He lives in Kentucky. So I might have to drive down and find his farm and just invite myself on his property. <laughs>
1: that I understand that works out well when you invite yourself on his property. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sounds like a great idea. Might
0: have a shotgun in my face. Uh
1: This is actually the last episode of uh, Drew's podcast. Have yeah, this sample hour
0: cuz he tried <laughs> to meet Wendell Berry and Wendell's family was not too keen on that. Uh now there's it's it's good books. Like a lot of his essays are from like the nineties and eighties and he's talking about things that are are very that a lot more people are conscious of today. And uh I'm a a lot of hipsters, like it's it's kind of funny, like we talk about ourselves and we're like we're like the, the hipster hillbillies because uh-huh. we're we're and it's and it so a lot of hipsters kinda of like to talk about Wendell Berry, but I think when you actually I think when it comes to like reading a philosopher, I think it's it's well worth reading Wendell Berry. Like he's been a big influence on like Joel Salatin too. Um, Mm -hmm. Did you read uh, Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan? I did, I did. Yeah, he references that quite a bit. He actually references Wendell Berry quite a bit and I didn't catch it the first time I read it because I was more Mm -hmm. focused on Joel. And then when you go back and then it's like, okay, Wendell Berry's actually been mentioned quite a bit. I just, it's like, you don't actually pay attention. it's, It's like something you don't, it's like, you know, when you hear a word for the first time, You'll hear it like the next week and it's like, oh, people have actually been using this word for a while. I just wasn't paying attention. And that's how how I feel like Wendell Berry is right now.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, or or you, I mean, especially like I love the experience of like when you're a kid and you don't realize that that's what's going on. And you're like, man, this word is suddenly everywhere.
0: (laughs) (laughs) For sure. For sure, man. Uh, Well, I tell you what, man. So we're at like an hour and a half. Um, Yep. And I feel like we've had a good conversation. I'll have to have you on again in the future, Hunter. I've had a blast uh, talking to you, and and I highly recommend anybody if you haven't, uh, if you don't know who Hunter is, definitely check out the Brian Callen show. Go to uh, thestraightaconspiracy dot com. And Hunter, uh, I could share the book for free via Audible, and if people want to si- sign up with an Audible account, they can get it for free. Would you be? I can cut this out, but would you be okay with that?
1: I think that's great. And you know, actually what'll happen is then you'll get fifty bucks for everybody who signs up for Audible.
0: I, I I'm not an affiliate, so is that how it works if you're an affiliate with Audible?
1: Well, there's some sort of referral program where I think you can share I don't know. Anyway, feel free you know, do 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 whatever it is. I mean the main we didn't write the book because we were expecting to get you know write a book about neuroscience for kids because you're planning to like be super rich. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's about getting the it's about getting the ideas out there. It's
0: good though. You and Katie narrated it. I listened to it uh the past couple of days and it was even good for me as a like if as an adult trying to learn and I think it's mm-hmm. um it really does a great job of of shitting on the whole idea. Well, let's talk about it real quick because The idea behind it is, you know, people think, oh, he's just naturally good at math, or this person's naturally good at this, and all that's really bullshit. Like anybody can be good at anything, it's just putting in the work and learning how to learn it.
1: Well, and crucially, those ideas that some people are naturally good at, you know, one thing or another thing, those are actually very sort of modern American ideas. Those weren't the beliefs that existed in 1776. Um, And anybody who listens to The Brian Callen Show, which we've now changed the name officially to Mixed Mental Arts, um, will know that I'm very fond of a quote from David McCulloch's 1776, which is, you know, it was a day and age where they believed that by serious and diligent application to books, a man could teach himself whatever was required. And if you listen to the sort of experience that you've been talking about um, with, you know, agriculture and animal husbandry – you know, you've taught yourself a remarkable number of things. And you haven't done that by, you know, having to have the pig butchering gene or, you know, a a natural talent for permaculture um, or, you know, having to even go to a fancy school and, you know, get a McDojo degree for a thousand (laughs) bucks. It's it's all been, you know, you just very much teaching yourself uh, based on, you know, what's available. You know, you, you putter around, you go, you read the thing, you then you go and you get your hands dirty. Um, and through that back and forth, you come to understand it and you get the lay of the land. And I think what's interesting is because so much of your community is, you know, this intersection of homesteading and homeschooling, they know that. They don't need me to explain that. It's just really extending that principle to... Uh, algebra or shakespeare or you know uh, music or really anything you want the great thing about the human brain is, is that it will learn whatever is required if you break down and sequence the information in such a way that your brain can you know uh, can acquire it and you know crucially that you have the right emotional context around the material where you find it interesting you find it fascinating um and it's presented in a way that really engages your mind and that's the big thing is, is that most of the challenge of learning is about managing your own emotions it's about the rider handling the elephant
0: that's great i uh i agree with that so uh well there's not really much to not agree with me that's that's a perfect <laughs> fact there <laughs> Well, Uh, awesome, man. Well, everybody on Twitter, they can follow you at Hunter Mots, and that's H-U-N-T-E-R-M-A-A-T-S. And you're also on Instagram, and are those the best ways to kind of follow you and everything that's going on?
1: Yeah, I'd say Twitter, and then there's a a pretty active Facebook group for Mixed Mental Arts, and then there's also uh, a subreddit. Um, So all of those work.
0: Awesome. Well, hey, Hunter, thanks for your time, man, and looking forward to getting you on again soon uh and then uh everybody thanks again for listening okay guys that was the show doing an outro instead of an intro i have a lot of affiliates now and uh just trying to mix it up so it's not just eight minutes of me advertising for my friends i'm sure they don't mind they're all listeners of the show but um you know sometimes you just gotta mix it up guys so that being said i hope you guys enjoy the show definitely click on the link in the show notes um you want to check out Hunter's book, I think it's a, it's a great book just about, you know, you can teach yourself stuff and it's, it's good for kids, especially. Um, I I like how I say that, like I have kids and I actually know where I homeschool. I'm not an expert in that at all. So I don't really know. I enjoyed it. So I assumed kids would enjoy it, but definitely check that out. Um, so yeah. And so let's, let's go to the affiliates. So first off, I um, want to give a shout out to naturesimagefarm.com. If you guys go to naturesimagefarm.com, check out all the all the nursery stock they have. They're actually selling out of stuff pretty quick. Um, so go to that. Just click on the link in the show notes and you guys can save 10% off um, any purchase and get free shipping. Um, also, there's still some stuff left on newfarmsupply.com. Go to newfarmsupply.com. Check out everything that's going on there. Um, There's some few stuff left. And you can save 20% with code word SAMPLE. So use code word SAMPLE. Get 20% off and free shipping. Um, If you guys want to get in shape and you want to, you know, reboot your body, um, my good friend Kevin Geary, who I'll probably have on the show sometime in the near future, he runs RebootedBody.com. It's it's pretty great. It's been a good resource for me. I've been losing some weight um, and hopefully I'll lose a whole lot more, but I, I love it. There's a great community um, of support online and lots of good information too, different stuff about foods to eat, uh, workouts you can do, just just everything. Like it, it explains a lot of science um, behind weight loss and everything else like that. Uh, if you want to start a podcast, I um, actually had a buddy that doesn't even listen to the show ask me about starting a podcast. So I'm a big fan of Podcast Blast Off. So if you click on the link in the show notes, um, you guys can sign up. And if you sign up through my website, I'll take you know uh, Nathan Frazier, who is my buddy who runs Podcast Blast Off, and that's what my podcast is hosted on. He actually does consulting with you to get started to... Make sure you get focused and everything, but I, I would gladly, you know, help you as well. I've been doing this for almost five years. You know, it's like four and a half years. So I like to think I'm I'm pretty good at my craft. I thankfully have some listeners that uh will tell me when my audio quality drops as senior farm manager Nate says, Yeah, he really he really crapped that podcast stuff. So Shout out to uh, Nathan Burns. Um, so yeah, I'd be more than happy to help you guys out and let you know everything I do uh, to get good, good, consistent, good sounding quality. Um, and then last but not least, if you guys want to to learn how to be a profitable produce farmer, um, I definitely would look to uh, profitable urban farming on the course. So if you click on the course in the show notes, you'll save. The first link saves you $100. The second link is a payment plan. That's what I signed up with. Uh, I'm a big fan of it. I'm excited to make some money here soon. Um, I know I've, I've been saying a lot on recent episodes about how I just think I'm going to aggregate. But I've invested too much money in infrastructure. And honestly, like I don't want one season to get the best of me. So I think i you know a lot more prepared now. Lots of stuff coming out in the future. New Going to mix up Failing Forward a little bit um, to cover this upcoming season. So with that being said, guys, I hope you enjoyed the show. Um, I'm not sure if this is always going to be at the end. I might throw these in the middle sometimes too. So anyways, guys, thanks a lot for tuning in this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Share it with your friends. Let them know that you love the sample hour. You think I have great content. Share it with me. I think it's great. Every time I get an email and somebody gives me a compliment, I'm I'm blown away and I'm incredibly grateful and I don't, I don't really make any money doing this guys. So that is enough for me. Um, if you want to give me money too, you can, I'm not, I'm not going to discriminate. There's a link so you can give me free money. Say thanks. I love your show. You don't have to though. makes me uncomfortable to even ask. So anyways, guys, I hope you guys make it a great day and I hope you love this episode. And uh, looking forward to bringing another episode soon.